always wanted to be macho. I know that. I don't know if I wanted to be in the gang life, but I wanted, I wanted respect. I mean, I've seen people respect my father, you know, and, and I, I don't know if I got a false sense of respect, but I just knew I wanted that. My name is Press Montoya, and I'm currently the director of Jobs of Hope. People join gangs because there's a whole lack of family. Most of our guys right now have no fathers. One of the things that gangs actually do well is really support each other. If you talk to any gang member, they always talk about loyalty. I got I jumped into the gang, the local gang from the east side on, man, I was 13. And they jumped on me, hurt like heck. But I stood up and they hugged me. In that same breath, they hugged me. You know, and they drew my brother forever. And it was the most exhilarating moment of my life. You know, and I think that's what we search for, is that moment again. That love and that acceptance. And, and it wasn't worth it in the end, but at that moment, I was on cloud nine. I started, it started to really wear out me, you know, doing all this stuff for my dad. And, and I, I remember I stole, stole an ounce. And I remember walked in, I was messed up. I was lit and uh, I don't even, you know, what is stuff? I'm gone. Then he tells me, uh, you know, all right. Because you don't ever steal from your family. And I put my hand down. Wow! Over. And uh, I was freaking, you know. What did you just cut my finger off? And I remember I could smell the metal burning. Smell the butter knife burning on the sto electric stove. Because the blood wasn't gonna stop. I think he was gonna stop it. So, and I remember, I remember that day I realized that there was, I didn't care about anybody else's life. My own father just cut my finger off. And I, I remember I, I vowed that day that anybody in my way would die. No hesitation. And thank God that that's not how I think now. That's probably one of the worst memories of my life ever. And so I came back. Dad sent me on some things, collect this money, take care of this, you know. But then I started freelancing. You know, the money Dad was Dad was paying me wasn't enough. So I started robbing, started stealing, you know. And uh, then I started realizing what I'd become. You know, and losing friends along the way. The thing that stopped me from wanting to gangbang anymore was my homeboy got shot. He, uh, he was shot and he died. And I just lost too many at that moment. I was done. Finally, I grew a big enough, you know, a big enough want for, for a better life to just leave. The things that society offers you, no gang life can't give you. You know, being a man that goes to work every morning, 
coming home every night. You know, there's not a lot of time to go mess your life up between that. You know, so you learn to do different things. So I heard through Jobs of Hope to a friend of mine. I was staying at his house. And um, honestly, I went to Jobs of Hope for the food. I'm not even gonna lie to you. Um, we had no food in the house. And uh, uh, a gentleman that ran, ran the program would bring food. And uh, so we went, you know. We have six to eight weeks of classes that cover anything from ego to financial management to relationships. What our goal is, is to be able to get them to be able to make their decisions when they come across those tough decisions, that they'll be able to sit back and be able to make a decision that will be beneficial to them. And uh, I showed up the first day. I remember thinking, this teacher don't know what the heck he's talking about. And um, I just looked at him and I laughed. Second time I came, he was full of it. The third time I was like, I just didn't know what he was talking about. Because that's when I found out that this man had done, went and done a bunch of prison time. You know, overcome a lot of obstacles. You know, do, did what we were trying to do. You know, and the third and the fourth one I was all in. But there was something about that dude and that program and the way it was in that place. Like, I walked in and I expected everyone to judge me. And I just found a bunch of older dudes that would have done what I've done and made it through. Uh, the goal of the program ultimately is to get them their job, their first job. M many of them, it's a first job. I remember the guy that was running Jobs of Hope at the time was like, I can get you a job today. And I was like, you're crazy, bro. You can't get me a job today. Walked me in, signed me up, done. Went to the UA the next day. I was on the roof. And uh, I've been there four years. Yeah, Mike started here about four years ago. Um, and kind of, you know, he had to he had to feel his way out. He wasn't the the, the eight hour a day, five day a week for Mike wasn't uh, wasn't the original Mike deal. He was still, you know, finding his way into, uh, I guess, the way of earning clean money, which is something that Jobs of Hope really preaches to the guys. And it, it feels it felt good, so good to have a job. You know, to have some money and honest money. I got, a, I, got a, I got one heck of a crew. They all teach me something different every day. One of the things that happens after we place them in their jobs is they find out in the workplace with their coworkers that there's a whole different life. So they have become friends with different coworkers and they see how they've been there for 25 years, how they have a retirement, how they have a family. And they look at that and, and it affects them. They start thinking about goals for themselves. I learned how to be a better father. You know, I watch Bob, how he interacts with his sons. You know, and I try to, I try to mimic that. So that, you know, because I don't know those emotions. You know, and Isaiah, he's really good to his wife. You know, and I learned how to be a better man to my wife, watching Isaiah. And Alonzo, he, he just teaches me that life's a risk, bro, and it's, it's here to be lived. Um, as he got uh, ingrained with a good group of guys, which he is now, he, I think he finally felt that uh, he was part of something. When the men come in, one of the things that we see during the classes is that they are looking for a connection. 
And so we can teach them some basic classes and they're beneficial. But the biggest piece of it is that we're able to touch their heart. It's amazing, it's amazing how they can come in here and have nothing. They come out of prison, they come out of drug rehab, but they do have hope. In the future for me, I'm gonna be on a roof until Jobs of Hope gets an opening. Or Jobs of Hope or something to that effect of helping, helping at-risk at -risk youth and uh, gang members and stuff like that because I think, I think everybody has a calling and everybody needs to be in certain places and I think that's where I need to be. You know, because I've done a lot of destroying and I want, I want, I want, I want to help people become, be able to see that there is a future after gangbanging. Wow, <laughs> what an amazing, amazing story of God's work in someone's life. We had to just end the service right now, but uh, you've stuck with me. So here we go. But uh, I really, I'm so thrilled that our church is partnering with Jobs of Hope uh, to see more stories like that changed. Um, because this really is, this is our heart. We are honored as a church. We're honored to be a part of that ministry in our community. You know, if God used that video to stir in your heart a desire to be involved in this ministry as a mentor or something, or if you own a business that could provide jobs for some of these guys, please send an email to info at org, and we will get you in contact with that ministry. That's info at org. We'll get you in contact with them. Man, I love all that God is doing in our, our church and beyond to change people's stories, and we're here today to open our heart to God changing our story. So um, I'm glad you're here. Greetings to our 15th Street campus and our West campus, as well as our traditions venue. Okay, so if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. We're in the midst of this journey, really a, kind of a verse-by-verse -verse journey through the book of Luke. And we're currently in the section, in the chapters, in the, the middle of this book where Jesus is focusing on the kingdom of God. And what we're discovering is that this kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. See, Jesus takes all these things that people believe about God and about his kingdom, and he flips them on their head. He flips all these ideas so that we can see clearly what his kingdom is actually all about. Well, today we find ourselves in a weird and surreal sort of story that Jesus tells. Um, the story is often referred to as the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And I'm going to say up front, this is a really challenging passage to interpret. I got, I got headaches from preparing this sermon. And uh, part of the challenge really is, is that it's a fictional story, but it has a lot of detail. And it's not always easy to determine which details are most significant. But I, I really am convinced that Jesus has some important things to say to each one of us from this passage. So let's dive in. Let me read this entire story, this entire parable, and then we'll kind of unpack it. <clears throat> There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to that you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. Now, one of the clues to help us understand the meaning of this story is to begin by looking at the context in which this parable is being told. All the verses leading up to this story are describing Jesus confronting the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He was confronting them about various things. So it started in Luke chapter 15 when the Pharisees are complaining that Jesus spent all his time hanging around sinners. And so Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, the wayward son and his his ticked off brother. And then immediately after After that, Jesus tells another story that confronted the Pharisees about how they were handling money. And then, as we saw last week, Jesus exposes how the Pharisees mishandled the law on the issue of divorce. Now, there is no break between the the passage we're looking at today and these previous passages. There is no break, which indicates that this story is also focused towards the Pharisees. And there are clues within the story itself that reaffirm this. So the rich man addresses Abraham as Father Abraham. Only the Jews would refer to Abraham in that way. And then we have Abraham mentioning the law and the prophets to this rich man. That would have made no sense unless this rich man is Jewish and well-versed in the law. And then we, we also know from the previous chapter in Luke that many Pharisees were wealthy and they loved money. So as we're looking at this passage, it's critically important for us to realize that Jesus is telling this story to once again call out the Pharisees on how they approach God and the world around them, how they approach God and life. And as we'll see, even though it's about the Pharisees, all of us are vulnerable to these same attitudes as well. So the story begins with Jesus describing these two different men in radically different circumstances. So on one hand, you have this rich man who is dressed to the nines. I mean, purple cloth was a very expensive type of clothing and fine linen as well. This man lived in extravagant luxury every day with all the food and the drink and possessions that anyone could ever want. 
In contrast, we're told that at this rich man's gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was destitute, he was starving, and in physical anguish because of his skin condition. And so as he lay there, Lazarus just, he he longed to be able to eat even just crumbs from the rich man's table. But the only attention he received was from dogs who were roaming the streets and they stopped to lick this, this man's wounds. I mean, it would be hard to paint a more stark contrast between the life situations of these two individuals, one living in extravagant abundance, the other living in horrible poverty. Now, we know from later in the story that the rich man knows who Lazarus is because he refers to him by name. And what that tells us is that this rich man was aware of Lazarus' plight, but he didn't do anything to alleviate it. He ignored Lazarus' situation. Now, it's easy to focus only here on the, on, on the issue of financial wealth in this passage. And a lot of people do that. It's easy to just focus on the issue of financial wealth. But, but this passage applies to more than that. Because remember, the rich man represented the Pharisees, who not only had worldly wealth, the Pharisees also had spiritual wealth. They were God's chosen people. They were descendants of Abraham. They were the ones God rescued from bondage in Egypt. They were the recipients of God's promised land. They had been given God's word through Moses and the prophets. So spiritually speaking, they lived in luxury. In luxury. They, they had been chosen for a relationship with God, but they didn't share that with those outside the fold. See, they didn't have an open heart toward the Lazaruses of their world, you know, the, the beggars or the sinners, as we saw in, in Luke 15. The Pharisees wanted to keep all of these spiritual blessings to themselves, to create this inclusive little club and not let any of this impact those in need around them. See, they weren't interested in helping sinners and needy people find God. No, they they weren't, because that would require them to actually have to hang out with people who they deemed as being unclean. That would require them to part with some of their precious money. See, they preferred to enjoy the spiritual and material luxury they had while ignoring the needs around them, which, as we're going to see in this parable, is the opposite of the heart of God. It's the opposite of the heart of God. Now, before we continue on in the story, we got to stop right here. I want us to just stop And think about our own lives in light of this rich man's example. Because in many respects, we are just like the Pharisees. We have an abundance of spiritual and physical wealth. I mean, we have the good news of the gospel. We have all these resources. We have different study Bibles for all sorts of different people. We have training materials. We have right now media videos. We have Bible study websites, all of which is great. But do we realize, do we realize that millions of believers around the world don't even own a Bible Millions of believers, they don't, they, don't own, they don't own a computer. I remember teaching at one of our ITIs 
in Africa. It was, ITI stands for International Training Institute. And I remember teaching one of our classes there a couple years ago. And I, I, International Training Institute is kind of this seminary on wheels that we've created, we as a church have created um, to help leaders who have no access to biblical training. And so we go to them and, and train them in this stuff. So I was starting this class at the start of the class. I just asked if anyone needed a pen because I had brought some with me. Uh, so anyone need a pen? I mean, uh, um, just to take notes with. You would have thought I was handing out pieces of gold. A pen. I mean, so many of these faithful church leaders, they didn't own a pen to write with. Most of them wore the same clothing every day to class. Statistics reveal that half this is hard for us to even comprehend. Half the world population lives on less than $5 a day. I mean, that's how much we spend daily at Starbucks. And I'm not trying to make us feel guilty about going to Starbucks. Please hear me. My, my point is that we need to recognize that we are in a very similar position to the rich man in this story, spiritually and financially. Compared, you know, we say, oh, I don't have that much, you know. Compared to the rest of the world, we are wealthy. Compared to the rest of the world, we have an abundance of physical and spiritual resources, which raises the question, how are we responding to the needy? How are we responding to the destitute that are outside our gates, to, to the needy in our community and our worlds? How are we responding? And this is why we as a church, we're, doing, we're trying to do what we can to make a difference in the lives of people in need here and around the world. Our, our For the City and Beyond vision, that whole vision is about this, whether it's helping girls that are being trafficked in India or it's, it's providing training for church leaders in, in various parts of the world, or as we saw earlier on the video, just some guys trying to come out of gangs and, and get their life on track. How are you and I responding to the needs that are being laid at our gate? See, the, the only way this rich man could live the way he lived was by closing his eyes and his heart to Lazarus. That's the only way he could live the way he lived, was by closing his eyes and closing his heart toward Lazarus' situation. Because he had to walk by him every day. He had to walk by him every day. But somehow, he justified this disparity of resources. He totally justified it. He justified his own self-absorption, why that was okay. And here's how I think he justified it. We know that many Jewish leaders at that time, and many people today, quite honestly, many Jewish leaders at that time believed that financial wealth was actually a sign of God's blessing and that poverty was a sign of God's curse. And so, so, so there was this... There was a smugness, there was a pride that, I, that accompanied their spiritual and financial abundance. I mean, look at me. Look at how blessed by God I am. I'm sure that the Pharisees, when they're hearing, they were hearing Jesus tell this story, I am quite sure that many of them, at the beginning of this story, many of them would be admiring the rich man. He was blessed by God. From their perspective, he was blessed by God, unlike that poor beggar at the gate whose life was obviously under God's curse. That's what they were hearing as the story began. 
Well, then comes the total whammy uh, in the story. No one would have expected this, especially not the Pharisees. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, I mean, talk about a shocking shift in plot. Both men die, but it is the rich man i.e. the religious leader, the descendant of Abraham, the one blessed by God. He is the one who ends up in torment in the afterlife, while the beggar, Lazarus, is immediately carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So what's happening here? I mean, how did this child of Abraham end up in torment while this beggar ends up cozying up to Abraham? Well, Abraham answers that question, verse 25. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Now, initially, it sounds like Abraham is saying that the rich man is in torment because he received good things in this life, and the poor man is in heaven simply because of his poverty. But that doesn't at all fit with Jesus' teaching elsewhere or the Bible's teaching elsewhere. There, there is nothing in the Bible that says that being poor or being rich is somehow more or less spiritual. Nothing in the Bible says that. What we're seeing here in this parable, what we're seeing on display here is something that Jesus taught earlier in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus said these words, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Jesus was very direct in his warnings about wealth, but it wasn't the wealth itself that was the issue. It was, it was what this wealth tends to do to the human heart. See, it, it, wealth causes us to become increasingly self-sufficient, self-absorbed, and less compassionate towards others in need. I heard a fascinating and very disturbing statistic um, uh, that, that revealed that the more money, people have studied this stuff, the more money people make, the less generous they are, percentage-wise. The more money people make, the less generous they become, the smaller percentage of income they give away. Now, that is so counterintuitive, right? We would not think that would be the case. It's so counterintuitive, but it, but it so vividly describes the problem of the human condition. See, we, we all know what a black hole is, you know, in terms of astronomy. You know, the, you know black hole is this thing in the universe that has such a gravitational pull that it, that it sucks in everything around it. It just sucks it into itself, including light itself, just gets sucked in. See, what, what the rich man in this passage shows us is how easily our hearts can become a black hole of self-absorption where everything is about us. And the more we have, the more it's about us. 
It's about our comfort. It's about our blessing. It's about our possessions. It's about our lives. We exist for ourselves. And it just takes more and more of us, right? And here's the irony. We think this focus is going to bring life, right? We think this focus is going to bring life, but it actually does the opposite. It robs us of life. Just like a black hole, it just starts absorbing the light and the life all around us. And here's what's so frightening about this story. I mean, you can't read this story without being a little frightened by it. Here's what's so frightening about this story. Jesus is saying that this black hole of self-absorption not only causes damage in, this, in our present day lives when we're living this way as our hearts become more callous you know, to the needs around us, it also has consequences after we die. See, the the rich man dies and he ends up in this place of torment. He is in agony, not because he has riches. No, no, no. That's not why he was there. It's not because he had riches, but rather because of what those riches had done to his heart. That's what's going on. All of his spiritual and financial abundance had simply fueled his self-absorption, his self-righteousness. He was trusting in his own goodness. He was trusting in his own morality. He was trusting in his own religious heritage. He was trusting in his own, his own resources. He, he was building an identity based upon self rather than God. In fact, it's interesting to note in this story, the rich man is not given a name. Lazarus is named, um, but the rich man is not given a name. Why is that? Well, some, some, some pastors and scholars, they suggest that it's because the rich man's whole identity was based upon his wealth. So when that was taken away, he lost his true sense of self. He had no identity because he was trying to build his identity over here on his possessions. And when that was taken away, he had no identity. See, when we build our identity on anything other than God, we miss who we were created to be. And instead, we become less of a person. We become less of a person. It's this black hole idea again. We become less of who God created us to be when we're building our identity on anything other than God. So it's this black hole. So because this man was placing his trust and his identity in himself and his own resources rather than God, he ends up in this place of torment. So let's talk about that for a moment. What, what, what about this place of torment? What is Jesus wanting to communicate here? Now, let me just remind us that we need to be very careful to not try and read too much into the story because it is a parable It's a parable. It's a fictional story. See, I don't think Jesus intends us to believe, to read this passage and believe that Abraham is the one who's going to welcome us into heaven. But that's here. But I don't think that's what the the point of the story is, that detail. Or I don't think that Jesus wants to communicate here that that there will be an ability to communicate between people in heaven and hell and vice versa, that people are going to be able to communicate in that way in the afterlife. And in, 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 in another fact, in Jesus doesn't, he doesn't, technically he doesn't even use the word hell in this passage. Um, he uses the word Hades, um, which, is, which is technically not hell. Hades was viewed in that time as being sort of a holding place for the dead until the final judgment. 
And again, I don't want to get into the weeds on these things because what, what I'm just saying here is that these specific details, they are not the point of the passage. What is the point, and we can't miss this really, what is the point is that the way we live our lives on earth has a huge impact on our experience in the afterlife. The rich man is in torment. He is in agony. And Abraham tells him that there is a great chasm between the two of them. So in other words, this situation is not fixable. It's permanent. Jesus is giving the Pharisees and us, he is giving us a sobering reminder that how we live our lives on earth will have eternal implications and that the destiny of each of the two men is not what was expected. It wasn't, right? Everyone thought, hearing the story, everyone would have thought that the rich guy, the religious leader, would get in to heaven. He would get in because of his spiritual and financial wealth. But he doesn't get in. He doesn't get in. See, Jesus is once again reminding us that his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. The way to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not the way most people expect. And Jesus is, is showing it right here. It's not the way most people expect. It's not about our resources. It's not about our morality. It's not about our heritage. It's not about our ability. None of that matters, according to Jesus. None of that matters. Now, as if he hasn't already done an effective job driving this point home, he continues to do so in the story. And he, can, he leads to really the climax of the story. But look with me at verse 27. Then I beg you, Father, this is, this is the rich man speaking. I beg you, Father. This is right after Abraham says there's a chasm. We can't, you know, Lazarus can't come help you and all that. So he's saying, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Okay, so, so in this place of torment, this rich man expresses this concern, genuine concern about his brothers. He wants Abraham to send Lazarus to his family to warn them. And Abraham responds by saying, look, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Now, this statement is clearly directed towards the Pharisees, religious leaders, because they are the teachers of the law, right? They pride themselves on their knowledge of the Old Testament, of Moses and the prophets. But Jesus is saying, guys, you have all this information, but you're not listening to what God says in it. You have the information. You're just not listening to what God says in the information. You're missing the heart of God, which is totally contained. It's truly contained in the law and the prophets, but you're missing that. So the rich man tries to argue his case further. Verse 30, no, no, Father Abraham, he said, but, but if someone from the dead goes to them, remember he's asking Lazarus to go. So if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that's where the story ends. 
if there is any doubt that this parable is directed at the Pharisees, all that doubt is removed right here. Because Jesus knows what is ahead for him. He knows that very soon he will be crucified and then raised from the dead. And guess what? The Pharisees who had the law and the prophets will still not believe. Even someone rising from the dead will not convince them of the legitimacy of God's Messiah. Now, the question is, I mean, how can they miss God when he was revealing himself through his word and when he was revealing himself through a resurrection? How could they miss him? Well, the answer to that question is found in a key element in this story. It's, it's a little earlier in the story, and I believe what I'm going to share right now, it unlocks for us the ultimate meaning of this passage. While the rich man and his brothers will end up in self-absorbed torment, Lazarus ends up in heaven, standing near to Abraham's side. So how did Lazarus end up there? When you look at the story in detail, you realize Lazarus really doesn't do anything in this story. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say, he's talked about, but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't respond in any way. So, so how did Lazarus end up in this place of blessing in the afterlife? Well, Jesus tells us the reason, and it's very subtle, and it's, yet it's a very powerful way that he does that. Remember earlier I said that the rich man wasn't named, but the poor man was, which means that there is something significant about this name. The name Lazarus was a very common name in that day, and most everyone hearing this story would know the meaning of this name. The name Lazarus means the one God helps. The one God helps. See, within this name is the key to experiencing the upside-down kingdom. Within this name is the very thing that opens the doors of life to us, both in this life and the life to come. It is not in our righteousness. It is not in our morality. It is not in our religious heritage. It is not in our material blessings. No, no, no. The way into the kingdom is by admitting our need and letting God help us. Jesus, the Messiah, came to save us from the destructive path of our own self-absorption. He saw where we were headed, and he came to rescue us. He came to save us. He came to free our hearts from this self-absorbed life that we can, so that we can love the broken and the hurting and the needy. That's why he set us free, so that we can reflect his heart. See, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus unveils is this amazing invitation to live in relationship with him, trusting in his sufficiency, trusting in his glorious resources, rather than our own sufficiency and our own resources. This is the essence of the kingdom. In fact, Jesus summarized this so powerfully at the start of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. The first part of the sermon summarizes really the basic message of the kingdom. And here it is. Verse, Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus said this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know how much they need God. They're the ones who are blessed. They're the ones who experience the kingdom. See, as this parable so clearly shows us, the door to the kingdom of heaven is closed to the proud. It's closed to the self-sufficient. It's closed to the self-righteous. It's closed to those who are caught up in this world of self-absorption. It is totally closed to them. But that same door is wide open and fully available to anyone who is willing to admit they need a savior. And they humbly choose to surrender to him. And then to live in that place of humble surrender. See, the way Jesus tells this story, I mean, it requires us to respond to the story. It's not just for intellectual information. The way he tells the story requires us to respond to it. And the way we respond to it, what Jesus is urging, he is urging us to put ourselves in this story. Where are we in this story? Where are you in this story? Where am I? in this story. If I'm honest about where I'm at in this story, it depends on the day. So there, there are some days where I'm just like the rich man. I'm caught up in my own self-absorption, blind to the needs of other people around me. It's totally me. There are other days where I'm just like the brothers in this story. I'm not living in the reality of a resurrected Messiah, but I'm just kind of stuck in my own independent ways. And thankfully, there are days where I'm Lazarus, fully aware of my need and leaning on Jesus to help me. See, that's where I more and more want to be in this story because that's where life is found. That's where life is found. So again, the question, where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? Let's pray together. So I want to, for each one of us here, I'm gonna, I want to lead us into a time of response. And so I want to encourage you just to stay with me here. This is, this is the key part of the message. It's not the information we've heard. It's how we're responding to it. So let me just mention a few particular scenarios that may connect with you in terms of where are you in this story? God, would you show each one of us where we're at in this story right now? The way we're living right now, where are we? And there, there are some of us here that are very aware that the way we're living our lives right now is exactly the trajectory of, of the rich man because we are trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in our own resources rather than trusting in God. And the Bible makes it very clear. When you are trusting in your own ability, your own righteousness, your own morality, your own church attendance, your own being a good person, if you're trusting in that, you will miss the kingdom of heaven because you're trying to save yourself. 
the kingdom of heaven is open towards those who admit they can't save themselves. And they say yes to Jesus as Savior. And so for the first response here, there are a couple more we're going to get to, but first response here, I want to invite you, any of you here, to enter into a relationship with God based on Jesus' work, not your work, not your effort. Based on Jesus' work on the cross. This is not something you have to earn. It's not something you have to work for. It's something you just have to receive. And so I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. And if this is something you desire, or you can enter into a relationship with God through Christ right now, where he, can for, he will forgive your sin and come live in you, I invite you to pray this prayer with me in the silence of your heart. Just pray with me. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy. You are perfect and complete. And I'm not. I've done my own thing. I've trusted in my own ability, my own resources. I've just tried to do it on my own. And I realize that kind of life separates me from you. But I don't want to be separated from you. Even though there was nothing I could do to earn my way to you through my own good behavior or whatever, you came to me by sending your son, Jesus, to earth. And Jesus, you died on a cross, on the cross. You died in my place. You took the penalty I deserved to pay. You took my judgment upon yourself. Thank you. And I choose to place my trust in you. I bring you all of my fears and my failures and my doubts and my righteous deeds, all the things that, are, that I've trusted in. I bring all of that to you. And in exchange for all that, I receive your life. Come live in me, Jesus, through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Forgive my sins, past, present, and the sins I haven't even committed yet. All of them washed in your blood. And change me from the inside out. Through the power of your love. Father, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. I pray they would grow in their relationship with you. Now, there are others of us here, and you can just continue to keep your head bowed. Others of us here, we prayed that prayer. We've been a Christian maybe for years. Here's the question I want to ask you, and I want to ask my own heart as well. Right now, the way you're living, the way I'm living, who are we really trusting in? Are we trusting in Jesus' sufficiency every day, acknowledging our need, or are we kind of trusting in ourselves? 
and that God loves us because we're such good people. Who are you trusting in? God, I pray for those of us who count ourselves in that category fairly often. Lord, we want that name Lazarus to be over our hearts and lives. The one God helps. That we would be poor in spirit, acknowledging how desperately we need you every moment of every day. We would be living by faith in you, Jesus. So I pray for each one of us who know you, we would continue to walk in that life of faith and trust and humble dependence upon you. And there's one other area, one other response, and I think this probably hits almost all of us here. But it's this tendency towards self-absorption so we ignore the needs at our gate. We just become so focused on more and what we have that we ignore the needs all around us, the needs in our world. So if that's you, it's certainly me many times, can, can we just take a moment and just admit to the Lord, just repent of that? Would you forgive us? God, for our self-absorption and how easily we get caught up in that black hole. And we pray that you would soften our hearts to see others the way you do, to see the needs around us, to not close our eyes, but to open our eyes to see the needs around us and to give of ourselves to help. Help us discover in increasing ways that that's where life is found. That's where life is found. So we pray for that heart. We know it's your heart. We pray that you'd continue to give us your heart for people in need around us. And we acknowledge where we were a moment ago. We just need you, Jesus, to do this in us. We need you to do this. Save us, continually save us from our own self-absorption so we would see the world through your eyes. Thank you, God. Thanks for your word. Thank you for challenging us. And we pray you'd continue to be at work, even now as we respond to your word, as we respond with songs of worship that you would be moving in our hearts and speaking to us. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. So why don't we stand? Um, if you want to remain seated, that's fine. But let's, most of us here will stand as the worship team leads us. And this is a part of our response as well. We're continuing to open our hearts to God, saying, speak, speak to us, Lord. We need more of you. We need more of you.